February 25th, 1733. Contained within the pages of the latest issue of the New York Weekly Journal was an opinion piece written under the pseudonym Cato. Cato was a continentally celebrated luminary of 18th century libertarian press theory and one of the leading voices who would go on to present nearly half a century in advance a foundational understanding of free speech that would serve to eventually undergird the American Constitution. For Cato asserted that the ideal of free speech was not only obligatory in a just state, but that it is the most important value for a citizenry to hold. This is both in terms of private individuals and the free media, because, as he succinctly highlighted, objective truth was the best defense against crimes of the state and its organs. For at the time, libelous speech was the preferred tactic that tyrannical governments could weaponize and silence their citizens with. For what better way to suppress and eliminate criticism of the state than to declare it hazardously false? So as the royal citizens of the province of New York huddled around their living room fireplaces during the dead of winter that cold February, they read the latest pressing of Cato's now invaluable words. Quote, a libel is not less a libel for being true. But this doctrine only holds true as to private and personal failings. And it is quite otherwise when the crimes of men come to affect the public. Machiavelli says muckracking is pernicious, excepting for accusations beneficial to the state. And he shews instances where states have suffered or perished for not having, or for neglecting, the power to accuse great men who were criminals, or thought to be so. Surely it cannot be more pernicious to slander even good men than to not be able to accuse ill ones. I must own that I would rather many libels should escape than the liberty of the pressed should be infringed. Yet no man in England thinks worse of slanders than I do, especially of such as bid open defiance to the present Protestant establishment. Corrupt men who have given occasion for reproach by their base and dark practices with the late directors, being afraid of truths that affect them from the press, may be desirous of shutting it up. But honest men with clear reputations, which they know foul mouths cannot hurt, will always be for preserving it open as a sure sign of liberty and a cause of it. The best way to escape the harmful stings of libels is not to deserve them. But as innocence itself is not secure against the malevolence of evil tongues, it is also necessary to punish them. Hello everyone, and welcome back to the Smoke-Filled Rooms podcast. Before we begin this episode, I have to briefly explain what this particular project has helped me spawn for the future of the show. After I finished writing the script for this episode, I realized that there were many more free speech issues that I wanted to cover in detail. This is because, to this very day, the axes of free expression and criminal law have routinely intersected 
and sparked conflicts throughout the United States' history, in courtrooms, at the ballot box, and sadly, even on the streets. And I take this topic of liberty quite seriously, not only as a writer, a political malcontent, and a future American, but also because, when compared to the rest of the planet, and indeed to governmental history, the American Constitution provides the deepest and farthest-reaching protections for free speech that the world has ever known. It is something beautiful to behold and to protect at all costs. So it is with great pleasure that I say to you, dear listener, that I will be intermittently producing a series of podcasts that deal with this very topic. What you are about to hear is the first chapter in a recurrent, but not necessarily sequential, series that I am dubbing The First Amendment Files. I hope you enjoy it as much as I did learning about it. I also wanted to mention that going forward, I will be leaving space at the conclusion of every podcast for a charitable cause that is directly or at least tangentially related to the topic. So if your fiat currency is burning a hole in your pocket, stick around until the bitter end to hear how you can donate it wisely. Cheers and thank you again for listening. Printing Painful Truths, The Zanger Trial, Chapter 1 of the First Amendment Files. Across the world, but more specifically in the Western world, the right to speak your mind without fear of government reprisal is recognized as one of the most fundamental rights that a person can hold. According to a Pew Research survey conducted in 2015, a global median of 56% of the world's population thinks it is very important that people can say what they want without state intervention or censorship. That is 56% that don't have the yoke of government oppression influencing even their responses to a simple survey like this. And nowhere is this number higher than in the United States. And that is not a surprising reality. The First Amendment, which protects an individual's right to speech against attempts by Congress to abridge it, is perhaps the strongest and most recognizable commitment to free speech that's ever existed in the history of the world. But it may not necessarily be the most important. The First Amendment codifies the idea that people shouldn't be punished for speech the government doesn't like. But decades before it existed, a precedent that protected free speech and freedom of the press and eventually helped shape First Amendment law was set in colonial America when printer and journalist John Peter Zanger was tried for seditious libel. He was prosecuted for the crime of speaking truths that the royal governor of New York did not like. Zanger's trial revolved around a simple question, can the truth be libelous? And to answer that question helped create the culture of free speech that Americans and other free nations around the world now enjoy today. This is despite the best efforts of tyrants, both historical and contemporary, who would have us praise our superior philosopher kings and have us all harmoniously singing off the current thing hymn sheet. And even back in the 1780s, Zenger's case was not only remembered, but it was arguably the glaring inspiration for the founding fathers of the United States to enshrine free speech protections. For when Zenger's case was combined with the colonists' experiences with the British royalty, freedom of speech and freedom of the press 
became unalienable political concepts. And indeed, one of the rationales leading into the American Revolutionary War. And these freedoms, of course, were enshrined in the Bill of Rights at the beginning of the Republic. But before we can tell the story of the Zenger trial, we must first understand what libel is. This concept and term is something critical to our story, so let's start with the definition. Libel is defined as, quote, a published false statement that can be demonstrated to be damaging to a person's reputation, or in other words, a publicly written defamation, end quote. This is markedly different from, say, a private conversation between two friends. In a private, face-to-face -face instance, or even in a messaging app, you may say that so-and-so is a scumbag because he's selling drugs to kids. If untrue and reported to the individual in question, it may fall under laws pertaining to slander or defamation. But libel is unique to published materials. And next we have to briefly acquaint ourselves with some of this story's most important characters. Our protagonist is John Peter Zanger, or JPZ as I may occasionally reference him as. He was a German immigrant to the Royal Charter Colony of New York and a publisher by trade. He printed the New York Weekly Journal, which was frequently critical of William Cosby, who was New York's then royal governor. Zanger was accused of, and tried for, libel, which at the time meant something slightly different than it does today. In today's parlance, libel, as I just outlined, was understood to be published falsehoods that are damaging to a person's reputation. But egregiously in Zanger's time, libel could mean something as trivial as responsibility for saying something the government found offensive. Stephen J. Ellison, a writer at FindLaw.com, explains how, quote, historically there was much less protection for speech than we enjoy today, including for the press and publishers. Examples of suppression, fines, and even more severe punishments for making false or derogatory statements litter the history books. The earliest ancestors of our modern defamation laws come from English courts, or common law, beginning in the early 1500s. At this time, the law governing slander focused on demeaning oral statements. By the 1500s, English courts treated slander actions like other civil tort claims for damages. But libel? It developed differently. During Elizabethan times, English printers were required to be licensed by the government because they believed the printed word to be a significant threat to political stability. Libel included any criticism of the English government, and a person who committed libel committed a crime against the state." End quote. And John Peter Zanger? He was one such printer. He was a man who chose to fight back against the government's bad-faith assertions of libelous speech. It was straight-up censorship of the truth, and the man who attempted to have his will enforced was William Cosby. He was the corrupt governor of colonial New York and the chief antagonist of the Zenger trial. He was a surrogate of King George, and before his gubernatorial appointment by the Crown, served in the military and held various civil service positions. In short, a sad and unproductive man who sought to use the state to exercise his own petty tyranny. 
and despite not being around for the production of the Rocky Horror Picture Show, Cosby was a man who wore an absurd amount of rouge to complement his feminine wig and clean-shaven face. Very reminiscent of Dr. Frankenfurter, in my opinion. But regardless, he had minor scandals associated with his administration, including tax collection irregularities and the wrongful seizure of goods as contraband, which he then proceeded to sell for his own personal gain. So not only a thief of people's taxation dollars, but also a thief of their private property. A criminal, in the broadest sense of the term. Some additional and very important supporting characters to remember throughout this journey are James Alexander and William Smith. These were JPZ's original defense attorneys until they were dismissed from the case. They were also secretly the authors of many of the articles printed in the New York Daily Journal. Remember the aforementioned pseudonym of Cato? Well, that was these two men's public writing handles. And it was for printing these men's dangerous critique articles that Zenger was being tried. Alexander and Smith, they were among the best trial lawyers that New York had to offer. And for their efforts to defend Zenger, they were summarily and unceremoniously disbarred by the state of New York. An act of direct reprisal from the Crown for daring to challenge its authority. And finally, we come to Andrew Hamilton, who would eventually replace Alexander and Smith as Zanger's defense attorney. Hamilton, who should not be confused with Alexander Hamilton, the infamous founding father, was a member of the Pennsylvania Bar and a one-time speaker of the Pennsylvania Assembly. He had a reputation as a powerful orator and was considered one of the preeminent lawyers in the American colonies. And based on the canvas portrait paintings of all these men I've just mentioned, Hamilton by far had the most badass wig. Check out his Wikipedia page to see what I mean. Most of the men that I've introduced were content to display a shoulder length and relatively straight up look with their powdered wigs. But Hamilton? He went with locks that flowed down to his stomach and is heavily reminiscent of an 80s hair metal band. And after a cursory glance on Google Images, it seems that his massive white mane most reminds me of Philly-based band Britney Fox. But returning to the 1730s, our story really begins with a legal matter that had little to do with Zenger. When William Cosby was appointed the governor of the Crown Colony of New York, he demanded that he receive half the salary of William Van Dam, the previous governor. Van Dam refused to hand over the money and Cosby decided to take him to court. Rather than go through the established judiciary, Cosby created a special panel of three justices who were largely under his control. Van Dam's lawyer argued that this was little more than a kangaroo court. The chief justice of the panel, Lewis Morris, he happened to agree. However, the other two justices remained loyal to Cosby. And for this act of judicial independence and perceived defiance against his dictate, Cosby had Lewis removed and replaced him with James Delancey, a justice whom he could more easily bend to his will. Van Dam and Lewis banded together and concocted a scheme to have Cosby permanently removed from office. But first, they needed to publicly air the arguments against this corrupt governor. 
At the time, newspapers were the best way to quickly distribute an argument to the masses. Print was the entirety of popular media in the colonies. So Lewis and his friends, including James Alexander and William Smith, established a newspaper, the New York Weekly Journal, and they hired John Peter Zenger to print it for them. Not so shockingly, the corrupt Cosby didn't respond well to the criticism levied against him. For several unrelenting months, the journal released many articles attacking the corruption of the Cosby regime, which increasingly infuriated this petty tyrant. He then tried, unsuccessfully, to have Zinger prosecuted. He tried twice, in the spring and fall of 1734, to have a grand jury indict Zinger for seditious libel, but they declined to do so. But three unsuccessful attempts to punish Zenger didn't deter Cosby's authoritarian animus. And in a smoke-filled room of a governor's mansion, this sad and vengeful man turned his efforts to the New York General Assembly, of whom he requested, and this is no joke, that the government hangman ceremoniously burn copies of Zenger's newspaper, and probably requesting that the executioner project a steely glare at the gathering crowd of confused onlookers. But yes, you heard that correctly. The ludicrous censor and speech fascist wanted to literally destroy anything critical of himself. But hilariously for us, and irritatingly for Cosby, they too refused to go along with this increasingly unhinged vendetta against the anonymous dissidents. But still undeterred, Cosby then turned to the sheriff, again repeating his request to have the New York Daily Journal's papers burned publicly not only as punishment against Zenger and his rabble-rousers, but to preemptively dissuade any malcontents from getting uppity ideas about printing their minds. The sheriff, seemingly entertaining Cosby's dictates, turned towards an alderman's court for authorization to do a public and state-sanctioned burning. But this effort too was frustrated when the court adjourned without entering the order. So, like every other tyrant occupying the dustbin of history, when the established legal and political framework failed him, despite the fact that it was almost entirely on his side, Cosby decided to go outside the law and create his own process to punish Zanger. So in November of 1734, a warrant was unilaterally issued for JPZ's arrest. Out of other legal options, Cosby used a tactic known simply as quote-unquote information. This allowed the prosecutorial forces to move forward without the indictment of a grand jury. Cosby had already tried to procure such an indictment and had failed miserably due to a lack of cooperation by almost everyone in the legal system. Richard Bradley, New York's Attorney General at the time, filed the information before the New York Supreme Court. Here, as in the suit against Van Damme earlier, Cosby was helped by his loyalists on the court. Those loyalists included Chief Justice James DeLancey, the same justice who helped Cosby in his suit against Van Damme, and Justice Frederick Philippe. In short, they were government toadies who suffered from bigwig envy of Zenger and Hamilton. But regardless of their follicle shortcomings, DeLancey issued a bench warrant for Zenger's arrest. And what was the charge exactly? The charge that would be assiduously pursued by the Crown was that of seditious libel. 
and again, I have to highlight the importance of this imaginary and authoritarian concept. Libel, which is reasonable if proven in the court of law, differs from seditious libel. This version of libel is understood to be published speech that may incite the polity against the authority and legitimacy of the state. That's right. These monarcho-fascists were so insecure in their governmental regime that they created a new law to ban speech critical of its rule. Because if people couldn't believe in Governor Cosby, well then dear lord, what could they believe in? Sanger was then officially arrested on November 17, 1734. His lawyers, James Alexander along with William Smith, sought a writ of habeas corpus and Zanger was shortly thereafter brought before Justice Delancey. And as a quick aside, a writ of habeas corpus is when legal entities command that the body of the prisoner be produced before a given court. This order revolves around an open inquisition into the cause of imprisonment or detention. Consequently, it is meant for the protection of personal liberty by granting accused persons their proverbial day in court. This has been established practice in the Western legal tradition since the year 1166. So after the request, Justice Delancey set a hearing date for November 23rd, less than a week after JPZ's arrest. At that hearing, Delancey set Zenger's bail at 400 pounds an astronomical amount for the time and well beyond anything Zenger could have possibly hoped to raise. In today's terms, that would represent around $120,000 US, the equivalent to which a malicious arsonist can expect to pay bail if granted it by a presiding judge. And it's worth mentioning that in comparison, this far exceeds modern bails set for robbery, most assaults, and even rape. So it just serves to show how thin-skinned Cosby was in the great scheme of things. By this logic, it would have been preferable to this man if you committed aggravated sexual assault rather than publicly point out his blatant corruption. And obviously unable to pay this exorbitant amount, Zenger languished in prison for the better part of a year. In his absence, his wife Anna continued publishing the paper, all the while criticizing Cosby and advocating for justice on her husband's behalf. She was ride or die for JPZ, so this goes to show for any of you guys listening out there. Find yourselves a girl who will continuously badger the state while you're in lockdown. In its totality and likelihood, the odds were greatly stacked against Zenger's defense not just because of Cosby's blatant corruption and ties to the justices who would hear the case, but also because of the charges themselves. For England had abolished star chambers in 1642 and the licensing laws they'd helped propagate in 1695, but the precedents created by them still remained in effect. Star chambers were created to distribute licenses to potential printers, so they amounted to an old-timey licensing regime. The crime of seditious libel was a creation of the Star Chambers, and it was even enforced after their abolition. Seditious libel, according to the judgment of these institutions, wasn't concerned about the truth or falsity of the statements in print. You could print the truth and still be guilty of seditious libel. It was a matter of respect, but not in the classical sense 
of rightly deserving credence for virtuous conduct. No, no, no. This type of respect was akin to kissing the Mafia Don's ring. The colonial powers ultimately understood that free speech was an aggressive act against their authority, the popular legitimacy of their powers, and to be actively anti-crown. For as Murray Rothbard brilliantly proclaimed in The Ethics of Liberty, quote, If the bulk of the public were really convinced of the illegitimacy of the state, if it were convinced that the state is nothing more nor less than a bandit gang writ large, then the state would soon collapse to no more status or breadth of existence than any other mafia gang. End quote. And that is precisely what Zenger and the anonymous Cato team were set to do. Expose illegitimate power and actively tear it down. For in Zenger's time, freedom of the press meant only the freedom to operate a printing press without a corresponding government license. It didn't mean that printers were actually free to speak their minds, but this is exactly where the difficulties in Zenger's case arose. He was surely guilty of the charges put against him, even though he hadn't written the articles in his newspaper that were critical of Cosby, but he had, of course, printed them. And this meant complicity in the felony of actively exposing government crimes. And further complicating his legal defense was the role that juries played in libel trials. The only job a jury had in such trials was to determine whether the printer was responsible for publishing the materials the government had flagged as libelous. The conceptual questions of morality, justice, and legal equity were not up for consideration in these matters. If the jury agreed Zenger was responsible for printing statements critical of Cosby, it would be Delancey, who was again very loyal to Cosby, who would examine the actual content of the newspaper articles and evaluate whether they were libelous. And correspondingly, the subjective punishment would fall in his lap. Hey everyone, we're going to take a break from this episode so that I can share a Liberty-themed podcast that you need to check out. It's called Break the Cycle with Joshua Smith. Josh Smith is a political commentator, podcaster, ranking member of the Libertarian Party National Committee, and a blue-collar worker trying to break the cycle of two-party politics. Mr. Smith live hosts Liberty-themed guests on his twice-a-week show to tackle important current events, hot issues, and of course, have a few laughs along the way. He has an extensive back catalogue of episodes that feature foreign policy expert Scott Horton, online influencer Forrest Mommy, human trafficking survivor and activist Eliza Blue, and of course, the most consistent motherfucker you know, comedian Dave Smith. So make sure to check the show notes so you can subscribe to and follow Joshua Smith's Break the Cycle. Episodes live streamed on YouTube every Monday and Thursday at 7.30 p.m. Central Time. Cheers, Mr. Smith, and rock on. Zenger's trial began on April 15, 1735, and things quickly began to go wrong. At his arraignment hearing, Alexander and Smith, Zenger's lawyers, questioned the validity of the tribunal itself. They brought up the impropriety of Delancey's role in Cosby's suit against the former Governor Van Dam, and they even questioned whether Cosby had the authority 
to appoint the judges to their positions in the first place. In essence, they were openly challenging the legal and political legitimacy of the New York colony's political hierarchy. This defiance did not sit well with Delancey, who disbarred James Alexander and William Smith on April 16, 1735. That is to say, the very next day. In their place, following a petition for legal defense from Zanger, the court appointed John Chambers to represent Zanger. Chambers was also a Cosby loyalist. But to the surprise of many, Chambers worked honestly on behalf of his client and tried to ensure him a fair trial. He entered a plea of not guilty and twice challenged the list of jurors who were going to sit on the case. The court was then adjourned until August 4th, 1735. This was so that Chambers would have time to prepare Zenger's defense. During this time, our insistent Cato writers James Alexander and William Smith, unable to represent their friend in court, were still working diligently on Zenger's behalf behind the scenes. And in the interim, they struck some good luck. They were able to convince bigwig aficionado and 80s glam rock hairdo influencer Andrew Hamilton, again, who was considered one of the best trial lawyers in the colonies at the time, to come to New York and represent Zenger for this landmark trial. Besides Hamilton's renowned skills of oratory and toupee shopping, there were other advantages to his presence. As a Pennsylvanian, he was an outsider to New York and less likely to be biased either against Cosby's tyranny or to be in the pocket of Cosby's administration. An honest arbiter who could mount a convincing case that Zinger should not only be made a free man once again, but that he did not commit a crime of any sort. Rather, what he printed was a public good and a benefit to his fellow New Yorkers. And when the trial resumed on August 4th, Hamilton lived up to his reputation. Richard Bradley, the Attorney General, read the charges against Zenger. Chambers then rose to defend his client, entering a plea of not guilty. He then turned and addressed the jury, making a speech many people would recognize from a courtroom TV drama today. He explained the demands of the legal question at hand and outlined how the Attorney General would attempt to prove that Zenger was responsible for printing the libelous content he'd been accused of printing. And then Hamilton did something surprising. He stood up, preventing Bradley from laying out his case against Zenger, and flat out admitted that Zenger had published the New York Weekly Journal. This should have been the end for Zenger. Remember, seditious libel, at the time, wasn't about the truth or falsity of printed statements. It was a question of whether someone was responsible for printing speech the government deemed offensive. And Hamilton had just blatantly admitted, despite the plea entered, that Zenger was responsible for printing speech the government disapproved of. So by his own attorney's admission, Zenger was dead to rights guilty. But Hamilton didn't stop there. He asked the jury to not only consider whether Zenger was responsible for printing the statements the government had deemed libelous, as the law required, but to the content of those statements as well. 
this was a direct violation of the instructions given to the jury. What happened next was perhaps the most famous part of Zenger's trial. In a speech that would one day be quoted favorably by the Founding Fathers and various legal scholars throughout American history, Hamilton stood up, confidently swept his massive white locks over his shoulder, and went on to declare that, quote, Just kidding, here's the real part. Quote, The question before the court and you, gentlemen of the jury, is not of small or private concern. It is not the cause of one poor printer, nor of New York alone, which you are now trying. No, it may in consequence affect every free man that lives under a British government on the main of America. It is the best cause. It is the cause of liberty. End quote. and the jury wholeheartedly agreed. Because even though Chief Justice Delancey had ordered them to dismiss this statement and consider only the question of whether Zenger was responsible for printing the material in question, they found Zenger resoundingly not guilty. He was released from prison the next day and went right back to printing his now triumphant newspaper. Sadly, Zenger died only a few short years later in 1746. But thanks to the efforts of Zenger's steadfast wife Anna, the New York Daily Journal lived on for another five years, publishing its last issue in 1751. On its own, the New York Weekly Journal deserves to be recognized for its contributions to the culture of American freedom and especially freedom of expression. For as we've seen in outlining Zenger's trial, its sponsors were part of a circle of men who would shortly become among those leading the fight for American independence. Nor is the outcome of the Zenger trial the paper's only contribution to the culture of a free press. Eighteen months before the events of the JPZ trial, the New York Daily Journal was reprinting excerpts from the Cato letters today considered some of the most influential documents to libertarian economics, the Cato Letters were an anonymous series of essays published in Britain in the 1720s. They primarily criticized the British government and its moral failings. And in an act of dramatic foreshadowing, the New York Daily Journal published an excerpt in 1733 from Cato's Reflections on Libeling. It outlined the case that truth was an absolute case against alleged public slander. The same case Zenger would soon have to make in the courts of colonial New York. And here is a portion of their argument. Quote, a libel is not less a libel for being true, but this doctrine only holds true as to private and personal failings, and it is quite otherwise when the crimes of men come to affect the public. Machiavelli says calumny is pernicious, but accusation beneficial to a state, and he shews instances where states have suffered or perished for not having, or for neglecting, the power to accuse great men who are criminals, or thought to be so. Surely it cannot be more pernicious to calumniate even good men, than to not be able to accuse ill one." End quote.
so even without the events of Zenger's trial, he should still be considered an important figure in the history of free speech culture. Pamphlets were an incredibly important part of the American Revolution. They were a primary means by which the arguments for freedom were disseminated and spread to the masses. Zenger's newspaper shines in this regard. Even before he had any clue he'd be using the arguments for press freedom in his defense, he was helping the cause of free speech by giving it a platform. The impact of the outcome of Zenger's trial is more complicated though. As we will see shortly, the outcome of this event continues to have an influence on how the courts approach First Amendment law. But one must also realize that the effects of the Zenger trial were arguably felt more immediately in Britain than in America. Britain passed the Fox Libel Act in 1792. This required juries to consider not just whether publishers were responsible for printing the statements that drew libel charges to begin with, but also as to the truth of them as well. And sadly, the same can't exactly be said about the United States. Zenger clearly helped propagate a culture of free speech in colonial America, the immediate effects of which are very clearly broadcast in the American Revolution. But the legal precedent of his trial was much slower moving. As a printer in colonial America, Zenger didn't have the right to print whatever he deemed fit. That's not what freedom of the press meant at the time. It meant the freedom to operate a printing press without a government license. And that remained true in the period of time between the Zenger trial verdict and America's official independence in the 1770s. But the ratification of the First Amendment in 1791 was supposed to change all that. In protecting the right of the press to speak its mind, the Founding Fathers ensured that printers could do more than own a printing press. It ensured they could put that printing press to pretty much any use they wanted. And it was supposed to ensure that no one would ever find themselves in JPZ's shoes again. But even centuries after the adoption of the First Amendment, the courts effectively used the colonial standard of libel to convict critics of the government. Today, we're familiar with the standard of actual malice as an integral part of the First Amendment cases dealing with libel. Essentially, the actual malice standard means that in order for someone to lose their First Amendment protection and be prosecuted for lying in the press, the target of their statements has to show that these lies are moted chiefly by a desire to hurt their reputation. This ultimately means that lying in the press is largely protected. This might seem controversial. Lying is supposed to be wrong. That's something most reasonable people agree with. But sometimes it's impossible to distinguish between fact, opinion, and propaganda. Bear in mind some of the greatest all-time frauds committed against the American people by the media, on behalf of their political class. These include, but are not limited to, the weapons of mass destruction in Iraq, the bipartisan underpinnings of the 2008 financial collapse, the Russiagate witch hunt on Trump, the worst elements of the COVID regime with lockdowns, vaccines, and masking, and the propagandistic coverage of the contemporary Ukrainian war. As these examples demonstrate, news and opinion are often indistinguishable. 
many of the corporate news networks conclude their supposedly hard-hitting journalism programs with a panel of commentators. And these commentators spin the news by offering their opinion of why particular stories are relevant and what they might mean for the future. And to make matters even worse, it's almost exclusively a duopoly of opinion within a very narrow Overton window. Meanwhile, political figures remain controversial and criticism of their actions often goes beyond facts and rests solely upon optics for particular motives. And politicians themselves are allowed to engage in speculation and make comments that deride the motives of their opponents. This is all to say that it is a heavily saturated and caustic media environment in which we find ourselves. And the people need to have the ability to freely comment on the actions of their government and to speculate about what their motives might be and what the effect of their policies could likely produce. And somewhat controversially, this might mean protecting the ability of the people and the press to lie or wrongly assume things publicly. For exempting lies and speculation from free speech protection plays a dangerous game. Recall a famous utterance by Noam Chomsky. Quote, Nazi propaganda minister Joseph Goebbels was in favor of free speech views he liked. So was Stalin. If you're really in favor of free speech, then you're in favor of freedom of speech for precisely the views you despise. Otherwise, you're not in favor of free speech. End quote. And Zenger's trial demonstrates one key concept, that removing free speech protection for untrue statements inevitably makes the government the sole arbiter of what is true and what is false. In fact, despite the First Amendment, the American government has routinely tried, and in a few cases succeeded, in making itself the sole arbiter of truth. It has often used national defense and political security as a covert tool for truncating the rights to speech. And it has often persecuted righteous dissent. In 1798, only a few years after passing the First Amendment, the United States government passed four laws known as the Alien and Sedition Acts. At the time, the U.S. appeared to be on the brink of war with France, and in the name of protecting the nation, Congress then raised residency requirements for U.S. citizenship from 5 to 14 years. And it additionally gave the president far-reaching powers over its citizens, including the ability to arrest, imprison, and deport persons deemed aliens during wartime. Controversial as this was, it wasn't even the worst part of the legislation. The Sedition Act made it illegal for anyone to publish, quote, false, scandalous, or malicious statements about government or government officials. At the time, there was a bitter rivalry between prominent founding father John Adams whose Federalist Party had passed the law, and Thomas Jefferson, whose Democratic-Republican Party opposed the law. Though the legislation was superficially passed to counteract moves the French Republican government had just taken against America, the general consensus was that this was just an excuse for Adams to hobble Jefferson and his political party. New immigrants to America tended to be drawn to the Democratic-Republican Party rather than the Federalists. This gave Adams and his crew thin political cover to target his enemies, 
which was namely Jefferson and his supporters. Though 25 members of Jefferson's party were charged under the Sedition Act, only 11 of them were tried and 10 convicted. Among the reasons that only 10 were convicted, the precedent set by the Zenger trial itself. Juries considered the truth of the claims in question and whether the statements for which they were being prosecuted were written with malice. So arguably, all of American free speech culture can be traced back to Andrew Hamilton's intimidating BDE wig and his abject refusal to abide by court proceedings. Mostly joking on that first part, but I like to think that it was at least a tangential factor. But getting back to the Alien and Sedition Acts, the real intent of those laws was to hobble the Democratic Republicans, and it backfired. Massively. The outrage over the law's anti-free speech implications helped propel Jefferson to victory in the 1800 presidential campaign. So when he became president in 1801, the law expired and became defunct while Jefferson pardoned those who had been convicted under it. Here we can easily show how the cultural impacts of the Zenger trial were felt more immediately than any legal precedent set either by it or, shockingly, by the First Amendment. Adams sought to exercise his discretion and prosecute speech he deemed false, scandalous, or malicious. Notably, there's no carve-out in the First Amendment's guarantee that Congress can't abridge the freedom of the press for false, scandalous, or malicious speech. But that certainly didn't stop Adams and the Federalists in Congress. And though they tried to distort legal protections for the First Amendment, the culture of free speech, of which Zenger was both a product and a promulgator, ultimately prevailed. Just as in Zenger's trial, it was up to the juries to ultimately decide that the state had overstepped its boundaries and was attempting to legislate deep injustice. That the juries managed to prevail in the majority of cases brought under the Sedition Act speaks well for the culture of free speech that existed at the time. It speaks to a generation of pragmatic idealism, but it does not speak well of the American government more generally. Shortly after the re-election of Thomas Jefferson in 1804, the American judiciary had another chance to put into practice the precedent set by the Zenger trial. And, once again, it veered dangerously far into the authoritarian realm. Case in point is Harry Crosswell, a defendant against the people who ran a small Federalist newspaper called The Wasp. New York Attorney General Spencer, who was a Republican and had no powdered wig to speak of, charged Croswell with seditious libel, likely because of his latent Whig envy. Okay, maybe ignore that last part. In actuality, Croswell had printed an allegation that Thomas Jefferson, who was president and seemed likely to secure a second term, had been paying publisher James T. Callender to publish negative stories about his opponents. Namely, John Adams and George Washington. 
an example of some persistent theme of the WASP's columns revolve around the idea that George Washington was not, in fact, a brave patriot and military leader who formed a republic around classical liberal principles? No, rather he was a lucky coward who stumbled his way into victory and was playing an opportunistic game as his people barely won the Revolutionary War. Here's an example of one such article. Written as a revelation wherein the author discovered letters written by the soon-to-be President Washington. Quote, The public will naturally be inquisitive as to the authenticity of the following letters. For everything else they will speak of themselves, and for their genuineness, the editor conceives himself concerned to give only such vouchers as he himself has received. I read these with avidity, and being highly entertained with them, have shewn them to several of my friends, who all agree with me that he is a very different character from what they had supposed him. I never knew a man so much to be pitied." End quote. He then relays the alleged correspondence wherein he told his wife and closest family that the war for independence was a terrible mistake and far from being patriotic, actually regretted waging it. And this was weighing so heavily upon him that it bordered on depression. The letters printed by the Wasp had George Washington writing, quote, But we revolutionaries have overshot our mark. We have grasped at things beyond our reach. It is impossible we should succeed, and I cannot say with truth that I am sorry for it, because I am far from being sure that we even deserve to succeed. End quote. And at that time, the publisher, James Callender, was a Jefferson loyalist. Though he would eventually turn on the president and go on to start rumors about Jefferson. These largely revolved around the scandalous accusations made about the president's sexual relationship with Sally Hemings, a slave Jefferson owned and who he was rumored to have had six children with. Claims that are still controversial to this day and ones that I won't want to distract away from the topic at hand. So overall, the New York Attorney General's behavior in the trial may have been motivated in part by revenge. Croswell had made allegations against Spencer in the Wasp. Going before the Columbia County Grand Jury, Spencer sought charges of criminal libel and sedition. The same standard that had been applied in the Zenger trial, guilt determined solely on the basis of whether Croswell was responsible for printing statements the government objected to, was applied in Croswell's case as well. His defense attorney, William Peter Van Ness, had tried to have evidence of the statement's truth introduced, but Spencer had instructed the jury to establish beyond reasonable doubt that Croswell had printed the statements. Where Zenger had prevailed thanks to an early form of jury nullification, Croswell's case had failed. And just to quickly remind everyone, jury nullification is when the jury in question renders a not guilty verdict despite the obviousness that the defendant is clearly guilty. The jury in question could explain that the law itself is unjust, that the state has misapplied the law in the instance of a given defendant, that the punishment for a guilty verdict is unduly harsh, or could even be an instance where it is utilized as a blatant protest against the criminal justice system more generally. 
and in some instances of jury nullification, an undesirable verdict for the state is precisely what the jury seeks because it is their right to do so. Although almost every jury in existence is not told of this right during most trials. Regardless, Croswell was found guilty solely on the basis that he was responsible for printing the statements that had appeared in the WASP. Alexander Hamilton, yes, the founding father Hamilton this time, acted in defense of Croswell. He sought a writ of certification from the New York Supreme Court and attempted to appeal the conviction. Hamilton's argument for overturning the conviction was based on Zenger's trial. Hamilton argued, quote, the right of giving the truth and evidence in cases of libels is all important to the liberties of the people. Truth is an ingredient of the eternal order of things and in judging the quality of acts." End quote. Ultimately, this appeal was unsuccessful. The court was deadlocked with two justices voting in favor of Croswell and two against. The fifth justice was Ambrose Spencer, who had deferred his judicial appointment for the duration of the case so that he could represent the people, who were the plaintiffs in the case. This allowed the prosecutor to move for judgment on the verdict, a move which was not made in Croswell's case. With the judgment at 2-2, this meant Croswell's conviction stuck. Ultimately though, Hamilton was unsuccessful in having Croswell's conviction overturned. Thereafter, the People versus Croswell became a landmark First Amendment case. This was incorporated into federal law by the Supreme Court's ruling in the New York Times versus Sullivan, but this didn't come about until 1964. Once again, the United States government defaulted on the legal legacy of the Zenger trial failing to defend the idea that truth is a defense against charges of libel and is protected by First Amendment speech. In Hamilton's arguments for the defense, though, we can see the cultural legacy of the Zenger trial was still prevalent. Hey everyone, I'm taking a break from this podcast to let you know about a dear friend of the show who's creating some amazing artwork. His name is Bradford Thomas, but he's widely known online as the Libertunian, and he draws Liberty-themed cartoons for all to enjoy. I bring this up because he is participating in Inktober. Inktober is a month-long art challenge that is focused on improving skills and developing positive drawing habits. Every day for the month of October, anyone participating in the Inktober challenge creates an ink drawing and posts it online using the social media-wide hashtags of Inktober and Inktober 2022. And this year, the Libertunian is focusing on literary quotations and pairing them with a corresponding picture. He has drawings up that were inspired by George Orwell, William Shakespeare, H.P. Lovecraft, and hopefully a Marilyn Monroe. So check out his Inktober submissions and generously share them with your followers. The Libertunian can be found on Facebook and Twitter with the handle at Libertunian. Or you can stop by his website at Libertunian.com and make sure to check the show notes for this amazing artist. Thanks, and let's get back to the show.
the legal implications of the Zenger trial wouldn't fully be incorporated into First Amendment law until the Supreme Court's ruling in New York Times versus Sullivan. Here, as with the previous cases we've discussed, the Alien and Sedition Acts are at issue. While most of the law expired in 1801 under Thomas Jefferson's administration, one of the four bills that made up the original Alien and Sedition Acts actually still remains in effect today in Chapter 3 from Sections 21 to 24 of Title 50 in the United States Code. The Alien Friends Act was originally passed to give the President the power to arrest and deport anyone he deemed hostile or a threat to the brand new nation. At the time of the founding, this made a lot more sense than it sounds to the modern ear. America was not yet a firmly established nation-state, and still quite vulnerable to attacks from enemies abroad or from internal espionage from double agents. But does this justify giving the president a power that seems to violate due process? Decades after the US established a navy? And an army that expanded their borders to encompass more and more of the North American landmass? The Alien Friends Act was given new life during World War I when Congress used Title 50 of the US Code to create the Espionage Act of 1917. As its name suggests, it was designed to punish anyone who spied on the US or tried to interfere with diplomatic relations. It was amended several times, including a year later in 1918. This act by Congress, which is often called the Sedition Act but is really a set of amendments to the Espionage Act, brings us back into familiar territory. The United States government flexing its muscles and violating the First Amendment in an effort to allegedly protect the nation. The bill forbade the use of disloyal, profane, scurrilous, or abusive language against the United States, the flag, its armed forces, or any other of its official institutions. It was designed to prevent people from speaking against the government in a negative manner which supposedly could have undermined the war effort and thus the sovereignty of the United States itself. It even granted the Postmaster General the power to arbitrarily refuse to deliver mail that contained derogatory or unpatriotic language, regardless of whether it was a purely private correspondence or not. The Sedition Act could only be used during times of declared war and convictions carried a punishment of 5 to 20 years in prison. Perhaps the most famous person to be prosecuted under the Sedition Act was a socialist activist named Eugene V. Debs. Debs, though a socialist, was also a pacifist and took no violent action against the U.S. He did, however, campaign against conscription, and this is the reason he was charged, convicted, and sentenced to 10 years in prison. And again in 1919, the Supreme Court upheld the Sedition Act in Abrams v. United States. The plaintiffs in the case were arguing that production of essential wartime materials be curtailed. According to the Sedition Act and the Supreme Court, this was not protected First Amendment speech, and Congress would eventually repeal the Sedition Act in 1920. But as we've seen, that doesn't stop the influence of the law. 
Just as the outcome of the Zenger trial didn't immediately set the precedent that truth is a defense against libel, repealing the Sedition Act didn't reinstate free speech protections. It wasn't until the Supreme Court's 1964 ruling in the New York Times v. Sullivan that the truth was finally and incontrovertibly established as a defense. I will perhaps dedicate a future chapter of the First Amendment files to this topic, but for the time being, I will briefly explain. For it's within this ruling that the actual malice standard, which protects even false statements under the First Amendment unless the plaintiff can show they were designed to do harm, was firmly established. At issue in the case was an advertisement that appeared on the pages of the New York Times newspaper. The ad had been placed by the Committee to Defend Martin Luther King and also by the Struggle for Freedom in the South two civil rights groups that were trying to raise funds to defend King against looming perjury charges. They also criticized the treatment that civil rights protesters in Mobile, Alabama had endured at the hands of police. Some of the allegations were inaccurate and wrongly described how force had been used. Mobile's police chief, L.B. Sullivan, took offense to these errors. And even though his name hadn't appeared in the advertisement, he argued he was defamed by it because he was ultimately responsible for supervising the police department and its use of force. As defamation law in Alabama required at the time, he wrote an official letter to the New York Times asking for a retraction. Unsurprisingly, the Times refused. They argued that their intention in publishing the advertisement wasn't to harm Sullivan. Furthermore, they hadn't fact-checked the ad because it had no reason to suppose the statements were false. Setting a precedent that required newspapers to fact-check every piece of opinion they ran, especially ones that were critical of public officials, was both dangerous to free speech and would severely limit the press's freedom. So Sullivan sued, claiming the advertisement was defamatory. Alabama courts sided with Sullivan but the Times appealed the case all the way to the Supreme Court. And the court came down with a unanimous ruling in favor of the New York Times. It adopted and popularized the term actual malice. This term protects untrue speech and requires a public official to prove statements critical of them are motivated purely by a desire to do harm. Though the phrase actual malice existed previously in libel law, it's the court's ruling in this case that introduced it into the First Amendment lexicon. So think about this for a moment. The actual depth of the First Amendment protections did not become fully realized until the 1960s, a full 163 years after President Jefferson let the Alien and Sedition Acts expire. And that's also a full 173 years after the First Amendment was adopted as part of the American Bill of Rights. But finally, the Supreme Court officially affirmed what the Zenger trial had established centuries ago. As Justice William Brennan wrote in the unanimous ruling, quote, 
The First Amendment protects the publication of all statements, even false ones, about the conduct of public officials except when statements are made with actual malice or in reckless disregard of their truth or falsity. End quote. And Brennan even cited the Zenger trial in his opinion. Quote, The American colonists were not willing, nor should we be, to take the risk that men who injure and oppress the people under their administration and provoke them to cry out and complain will also be empowered to make that very complaint the foundation for new oppressions and persecutions. End quote. So with this ruling, seditious libel and its associated laws were now officially unconstitutional. It took approximately 230 years, but the outcome of the Zenger trial eventually became the precedent that has influenced First Amendment law the most. Indeed, it remains a rallying cry for the legal deference to free speech rights of the press. And old JPZ, he was a very lucky man. By the standards of the time in which he lived, he should have been convicted of his alleged crime of seditious libel. And when considering where American jurisprudence was at the time, even after the First Amendment was adopted, he should have been convicted. But as we've observed, he wasn't. And this had very little to do with the court system. It really came down to the people who happened to be in that courtroom and their enthusiasm for liberty-minded ideals. Ideals that revolve around truth, free expression, and the God-given right to speak whatever the fuck is on your mind. Zenger beat a charge of seditious libel because the people on his jury were enraged by the way he had been treated. Those brave jurors mocked the idea that the government couldn't be criticized and that, further still, maybe they needed to be knocked down a peg or two from time to time. But while his case was a moral victory for free speech, it was hardly a legal one. The Zenger precedent was ignored, and other people were prosecuted for seditious libel even after Zenger, and they were summarily convicted. And this was in the United States as an independent nation well after the adoption of the First Amendment. Overall, it took over 200 years for seditious libel to become unconstitutional in the United States. And in many of the First Amendment cases, including the New York Times v. Sullivan, and the defenses made against the Sedition Act, Zenger's trial was cited. So what would have happened if Zenger's trial hadn't been presided over by a jury that considered its moral and libertarian duty outweighed by its legal one? Jurisprudentially, probably not a lot. As we've already discussed, Zenger's trial reflected an ideological shift in thinking, but not necessarily a legal one. Because even with the amendment's alleged ironclad guarantee that Congress couldn't make laws that abridge speech, seditious libel remained technically constitutional until the 20th century. And even then, it had to claw its way to the Supreme Court. And this is the most fundamental problem with the centralizing nationalism of the state more generally, is it not? That even the fairest law code in the land still has to be interpreted and applied by human beings, and often at a national level. 
people who are flawed, influenced, weak, evil, and often broken can bend existing laws to fit their short-sighted and perilous agendas. But the jury's conclusion in Zenger's trial was a microcosm of what was to follow. It clearly illustrated the anger towards the British government and their willingness to use violent force to assert their unalienable rights. The members of Zenger's jury, they willfully ignored instructions to rule solely on whether Zenger was responsible for publishing the speech the government had termed libelous. This shows a flagrant disregard for the directions of the colonial government, which is especially remarkable in the context of Cosby's prosecutorial animus for Zenger. But most importantly, it shows a hunger for fairness, and it rebukes the ability of the current regime to rule its people without regard for their rights or the treatment they receive at its hands. If Zenger had been convicted by a passive jury, it could have led to a broader crackdown on dissident publishers like himself. It could have emboldened Cosby further and reinforced the absolute power the state had over speech. Truth would not have been a defense against libel. And when the government has the sole power to determine what's libelous, that gives them the power to punish people for pretty much anything they want. As a quick thought experiment, regardless of your political persuasion, imagine your worst political enemy having the power to indict you for anything you say or believe. Is this the kind of country you'd want to live in? For even when your team is in charge, you know full well they won't always be. And then the government gun will inevitably be turned on you. So the most rational position is for all of us to agree that free speech should not be curtailed by the state in any way, shape, or form. In Zenger's time, pamphleteering played an incredibly huge role. Through the works of people like Thomas Paine, sophisticated arguments against British rule were disseminated to the masses. This showed those dissatisfied with colonial rule that they were not alone and provided them with the arguments they could use to fight oppressive acts. And despite the situation we are enduring now, in this year of 2022, dissent has historically been an important part of American culture that even preceded its founding. And for this reason, the outcome of the Zenger trial is crucially important. It was, and still is, a rallying cry for the smallest minority on earth, the individual. For as objectivist philosopher and American immigrant Ayn Rand once stated, quote, Freedom of speech means freedom from interference, suppression, or punitive action by the government, and nothing else. It does not mean the right to demand the financial support or the material means to express your views at the expense of other men who may not wish to support you. Freedom of speech includes the freedom not to agree, not to listen, and not to support one's own antagonists. A right does not include the material implementation of that right by other men. It includes only the freedom to earn that implementation by one's own effort. Private citizens cannot use physical force or coercion. They cannot censor or suppress anyone else's views or publications. Only the government can do so. And censorship is a concept that pertains only to governmental action." End quote. 
and even with all the odds stacked against him, Zenger managed to win and to secure his rights. It's an incredibly positive example of the impact one individual's speech can have. And that, even more than the legal precedent it eventually helped set, is what makes it so important. Clearly, the Zenger trial helped foster a strong cultural attachment to free speech. This has played an important role at various points in American history and helped ensure that the judicial branch lives up to defending the rights laid out in the First Amendment. But should we care about it today? Is it still relevant? Well, the idea that truth is a defense against libel is incredibly relevant to the debate currently raging over Section 230. But don't take it from me. Go check out Alex Berenson's unreported truths column on Substack and get it straight from the horse's mouth. His lawsuit against Twitter for censoring his account at the behest of government officials in the Biden White House has opened a Pandora's box of potential legal challenges that will shed more light on big tech malfeasance. To summarize though, Section 230 is a part of the 1966 Telecommunications Decency Act. It shields online platforms from being held criminally liable for illegal acts its users might advocate for or describe. For example, if a Facebook user advocates violence against an elected official, that user, not Facebook itself, can be held criminally liable. If someone posts on the comments section of an article of a digital newspaper, the poster, not the newspaper, can be held criminally liable. Section 230 does not apply to content that online platforms create themselves. This includes articles a newspaper might write or disclaimers that it adds to its users' posts. Critics of Section 230 allege that by moderating content, especially because of an alleged political bias, platforms are acting as publishers and should lose their immunity. That very distinction, that platforms have protections publishers don't, is not in the law. And those who argue that platforms bargain for Section 230 protections by promising to behave in a content-neutral fashion are arguing in bad faith. Section 230 is sometimes called the First Amendment of the Internet. It protects the First Amendment rights of digital platforms and allows them to use content moderation to control what appears on their platforms. This is akin to a newspaper's editorial board's ability to refuse to publish anything it feels is reprehensible or violates its ethics. Those who want to take away Section 230 protections are asking for one of two things to happen. It either means social media companies will not allow user-generated content because they'll have to individually investigate every statement people want to post to make sure there's nothing they could be held criminally liable for, like factual untruths or criminal sentiments. Or, they won't be able to verify anything and social media will be awash with spam and explicit content. This would hypothetically force users to sort through the mess of posts, assuming they're not turned off by it and find the content they actually want to read. The former possibility is not unlike the argument the New York Times made in defense of itself in New York Times v. Sullivan. There, the paper argued it shouldn't be responsible for fact-checking every piece of editorial content that appeared under its banner. Not only would this violate its First Amendment rights, 
but it would severely hamper its ability to operate. Section 230 isn't a lot different. Banning content moderation has dark implications for freedom of association, which is also protected by the First Amendment. And taking away immunity from prosecution for speech made by others essentially requires would-be publishers to fact-check every single thing they want to publish. This degrades the quality of speech available and would hold publishers accountable for statements made by others. And this certainly violates the actual malice standard. If a newspaper can be sued for publishing an untrue statement made by someone else, truth wouldn't even be a defense against libel because an online newspaper could print something that they had every reason to believe was correct and still be sued because it was written in bad faith by the original author. And essentially, this would return us to the situation of the Star Chambers. You wouldn't need a government license to publish, but everything you published would be subject to regime oversight and approval. Again, something like this is becoming self-evident when state power itself starts censoring journalistic efforts like Alex Berenson's COVID speech. But to leave it at this for now, the topic of Section 230 will almost certainly be addressed in a future First Amendment Files podcast, so stay tuned for that. So in its totality, the history of First Amendment law in America is one that advances lofty ideals that are frequently let down by governmental choices. But at certain times in its history, the principled and courageous Americans have stepped up to this challenge, no matter the threat to their own livelihood and John Peter Zenger is one such example. In considering First Amendment law now and in the future, we should remember the example he set and try and live up to it. And that means recognizing that publishers in both traditional and new media are going to make decisions to print and moderate content that's going to upset people. But that controversy should never subsume the protections of the First Amendment itself. To many people, John Peter Zenger, among them, have fought too hard to secure them. For as Evelyn Hall summarized of Voltaire's philosophy, of which was greatly absorbed and propounded by the Founding Fathers, quote, I may gravely disapprove of what you say, good sir, but I will defend to the death your right to say it, end quote. Thank you for listening to this first chapter of the First Amendment Files. Be well and stay tuned. So for this episode's charity segment, I'm going to refer to two specific organizations that deal with free speech, constitutional law, and the protection of individual liberty. The first is the Canadian Constitution Foundation, 
because of their exemplary performance throughout the seemingly endless slog of governmental tyranny, otherwise known as the COVID-19 pandemic. The CCF is a national and nonpartisan charity dedicated to defending the constitutionally protected rights and freedoms of Canadians. This includes, but is not limited to, maintaining Canada's constitution, including its federal structure and division of powers, as intended in the Constitution Act of 1867. Their mandate is to ensure that government power does not infringe on the rights and freedoms of Canadians, or disrupt the principles of Canadian federalism. The CCF advances these objectives by promoting civic engagement, awareness, and education regarding contemporary issues and developments in Canadian constitutional law. But most importantly, the CCF initiates and intervenes in high-profile court cases where it advocates against government overreach and urges courts to adhere to the written text and scheme of Canada's constitution. And this is no easy task considering the current regime. Among their most recent campaigns were fighting against the disgusting vaccine passports and the forcible closing of religious institutions during the draconian and depraved lockdowns. So go to theccf.ca to learn more and chip in a few bucks to help their legal experts protect the remnants of Canadian liberty. Again, that is theccf.ca. T-H-E-C-C-F dot C-A. The next charity is an American civil liberties and free speech organization called FIRE. Founded in 1999 as the Foundation for Individual Rights in Education, FIRE's mission is to defend and sustain the individual rights of all Americans to free speech and free thought, which are the most essential qualities of liberty. They educate Americans about the importance of these inalienable rights, promote a culture of respect for these rights, and provide the means to preserve them. FIRE recognizes that colleges and universities play a vital role in preserving free thought within a free society. To this end, we place a special emphasis on defending the individual rights of students and faculty members on our nation's campuses, including freedom of speech, freedom of association, due process, legal equality, religious liberty, and the sanctity of conscience. FIRE pursues its charitable mission to preserve free expression's foundational place in American democracy as a tax-exempt, non-profit organization under Section 501c of the Internal Revenue Code. So all contributions to FIRE are tax-deductible to the full extent of the law. So to check out their work and make a much-appreciated donation, go to thefire.org. That's thefire.org. T-H-E- F-I-R-E dot org. And there, you can check out some of the work they've done on college campuses revolving around free speech, religious liberty, and due process. Again, that's thefire.org. Thank you for listening to this podcast. We would like to be 100% crowdfunded, so we have created PayPal, Patreon, and crypto appreciation jars. They can be found at smokefilledrooms.net or on any of the Smoke-Filled Room's social media accounts, such as Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and Locals. Thank you in advance for your generous and much-appreciated contribution. Smoke-Filled Rooms is a completely independent podcast that is created, written, hosted, produced, and engineered by me, Gregory Zink, and falls under the umbrella of Zink Publishing Incorporated. Additional voicing for the episodes 
is from the lovely Shari Maharaj. Cheers, and thank you again for listening.